Reporting started. Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2011, at least it is in the United States. Our guest today is Steve Wheeler. Steve, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's very nice to be here, and uh, hello, everyone, and thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. The Future of Education is supported by my employer, Illuminate. The project I work on is called Learn Central. It's a free social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. You can host your own webinars for free. I encourage you to come look at it. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow night, at least nighttime in the US, uh, Michael Horn joins us again for another Insight report, this time on the North Carolina School Connectivity Project. Next week, Jim Klein talks about social networking for students. Uh, we have a panel on unschooling. Kevin Kelly has rescheduled for March 7th. Delighted to have him uh, able to do that. You can see the rest of the schedule there. I don't think anything is brand new. David Shank yesterday on his book, The Genius and All of Us, did confirm yesterday that's new. I'm very excited about Hugh McGuire from LibriVox coming on, because I'm a huge fan. But lots of fun interviews coming up. Hope there's something that's of interest to you. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all recorded. They're in full Illuminate form, as well as uh, an MP3 file. Uh, there is a podcast link at futureofeducation.com. Just click on the previous shows. Uh, yesterday we heard from John Seeley Brown on his new book, A New Culture of Learning. Terrific show. David Perkins before that on Making Learning Whole. Hopefully something there that is of interest to you and um, you'll find it worthwhile checking those out. If you are going to Q or ISTE, the two EdTech shows in the US coming up are two of the bigger ones coming up. Uh, we do have crowdsourced activities at both of those. Uh, there's an EduBloggerCon the day before Q, uh, the afternoon and evening, and the full Saturday before ISTE. Information on those is at EduBloggerCon.com. Both will have a Bloggers Cafe, and both have Unplugged series. If you've never presented at these shows or you weren't accepted this year, you can actually present. We have a presentation area. You can sign up on the wiki and present, and we stream those all out live in a if this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. We sure hope that you will find ways to engage here. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a clapping hand, a smiley face. Please feel free to use those during the show. The hand with the green up arrow lets you raise your hand. After Steve's presentation, uh, we will have a Q&A period, and that would be the appropriate time to use that, that uh, raising hand icon. You can also put notes in the chat, and I'll follow those. I'm going to try and capture any questions that come up during Steve's presentation so that, um, that he has a sense of what kind of questions um, he'll need to answer at the end. And we'll try not to interrupt the show unless there's something that really catches his eye. Right now, we're going to let you indicate where you're listening from. To do so, click on the wand. That's the wand with the red star at the end, and then click on the map, and it puts a dot on the map for us. Feel free to shout out in the chat as well. We're all thinking about New Zealand. We're all thinking about the Middle East. Love the diversity of the crowd. As Peggy said, yes, this is a fabulous group. wherever you're listening from. We sure appreciate it. If you're listening to the recording, thanks for 
taking the time. Okay, Steve, so I'm going to turn over to you. You do have a presentation, which is fun. This is one I really wanted to see. Uh, I'll keep notes in the chat. I'll let you introduce yourself. And then um, I'll kind of give you a heads up if for some reason uh, you, we get to 15 or 20 minutes left and you, and you don't realize it, I will let you know. Otherwise, I'll capture those questions in the chat and be prepared to kind of facilitate that. And here we go. Okay, Steve, that's great. Thank you very much. And um, hello, everyone. I see 112 people, I think, uh, in the room, which is great. Um, and uh, this presentation really is a repeat of something I did in Germany uh, last month, which it's a kind of a collection of my thoughts about what I think might be the future of what we're going to see in, in learning and, and with technology as a supporting tool. So I'm going to kind of just try and gaze a little bit into the future with you, but you know it's very dangerous to gaze into the future simply because we really don't know uh, what's going to happen around the corner. And um, uh, uh, once upon a time when Alexander Graham Bell's amazing new technology, the telephone, was shown uh, for the first time in the Wild West, in the Midwest of America, a U.S. mayor actually said this, one day every town in America will have a telephone. Now, he was right. Every American town does have a telephone, as you all know. But what he couldn't foresee, I suppose, was that people would one day walk around with them in their pockets as well. So he was right, but he was so far off the mark that it's laughable now. So we've got to be careful when we try to predict the future. But what we can do is we can look at trends. Uh, we can look at the way technology is going and the way um, learning trends are going and so on. One of the things that is a problem for us as teachers and as educators is that we're trying to prepare students for something we can't actually de describe in, in, in real terms yet. Um, David Warwick was right. This is a big problem. And we've all got to try and um, come to terms with this with our learners without letting them down. So for me, to teach learners how to learn is the most important thing, to, to enable them to be flexible, to, to enable them to be um, adaptable, I suppose, and, and to enable them also to, to uh, kind of, in some way, um, grasp all the possibilities without, without uh, going astray. That's what my aim is as an educator. And uh, this is a kind of a, an issue. We have around about 20% of what we learn is in the classroom. According to Kofor and various others, people like Jay Cross, who I've talked to, would say similar things, that 80% of what we learn is actually informal. Um, and that needs to be taken into consideration. I would suggest to you all that blended learning is no longer going to be about, for, uh, it's not going to be about distance versus local. It's not going to be about technology versus no technology. It's now going to be whether we can blend the formal and the informal learning together, whether we can take all the excitement of the informal learning that goes on out there and actually bring that into the formalized classroom and vice versa. I think that's going to be our challenge for blended learning in the future. Um, I share this slide here because um, Einstein is one of my heroes. And this, for me, is the essence of what I do as a teacher. I try and provide conditions in which my students can learn rather than to, to kind of preach at them or, or try and direct them into the way of thinking. Uh, that's my, not my job. And I don't think that's the job of any teacher, really, although it does happen a lot in classrooms. And really, I, I want to kind of define the difference between knowledge and wisdom here. Uh, knowledge, for me, is, is, is along the lines of something like knowing that a tomato is a fruit. You know, it's a fact, or a tomato, or a tomato, as you say in America, is actually a fruit. But 
wisdom is knowing that you don't actually put that in a fruit salad. You know, so so one is gained by learning formalized facts. The other is actually gained by experience. If you've uh, any of you have read my latest blog post, you'll know that when I was in Christchurch last year in New Zealand, I, I was making um, a keynote speech at ULEARN, which is a very large conference. And I loved the city, but um, there, was a, there were several earthquakes while I was there, minor ones. One was a 5.0, which was quite big and shook the place. But um, the thing is, they've had a a, a, a really uh, a major disaster there in the last couple of days, as you all know. And my blog post really says, look, it's the wisdom that's going to come out here, not the knowledge. Um, they're not going to um, survive by facts. They're going to survive by, by um, discerning what is the best way forward and the best way of rebuilding. And uh, I, my thoughts and my prayers go out to the people of Christchurch at this time because I've got lots of friends down there. Um, move on a little bit. and. What I want to say is that learning is not simply about gaining knowledge. For me, it's a lot more than that. It's about making connections. And, and the connections can be between knowledge and people or between people and people. I think that's the important thing that we will see happening in the future of education. It's about what George Siemens would call connectivism and what Stephen Downs would, would agree with, I think, uh, as, as theorists in that area. It's about who we know rather than what we know. Here's uh, uh, an anarchist philosopher who's actually, I'm a big fan of, even Elitch, back in the 70s, um, said, look, we, at the moment in schools we have funnels. What we should be having is webs, learning webs. But that, for me, I think was a very prescient, very far-reaching look into the future because although the internet didn't exist in them days in, in terms of the World Wide Web that we know now, what was happening was that computers were, were available. And what he was trying to say was, look, school in its current format, one size does not fit all. We're, we're teaching all children the same thing. We're batch processing them almost as if they're in an industrial process, when in fact every child is unique and different. Every student has different aspirations and hopes and, and, and um, uh, for the future. So really, it's not so much about passive reception of knowledge, the funneling. It's more about how they can connect with each other participatory to actually create their own meaning and negotiate their own um, understanding of, of, of life. And, and everything around them. So really, this is the direction I'm trying to go in with my students, and, and um, I'm, I'm trying to get other people also to understand this idea. I know lots of people are doing this already. And um, Don Hapscott says some very interesting things as well. It's not what you know that counts anymore, it's what you can learn, he says. And really, that, for me, is all about connections to your own community of practice. Now, there are so many ways that we can connect into communities of practice these days uh, with, with social media, for instance, and, and with mobile technologies. It's unbelievable uh, how um, many opportunities there are out there now for us all. So here's the next kind of concept. Now, uh, it's interesting because Mark Prensky and I just linked up today on Facebook for the first time, although we've known each other for a couple of years. And although I love Mark very much, I don't subscribe to his idea of the digital natives and immigrants because I think it's too simplistic. And the idea of net generation also, to me, is, is not the, the kind of the important point we need to make. The important point is that everybody is engaging with technology in some way or another. Even if they're in a third world nation, I've seen young kids in places like the Gambia, which is one of the poorest nations in Africa, and even they have mobile phones uh, to, to connect to, to information. Now, it's not about digital natives so much, it's about what students need. Uh, what are their expectations and what are their needs? These are sometimes two different things. And really what I want to say here is this, that 
students want fun things, they want engaging things. Young kids in particular are great at playing games because they're fun, but they learn an awful lot from them in an informal way. It's all of these things really. It's, uh, you can play serious games, uh, you can have interactive narratives where you are creating the story yourself and moving around within it. Um, there are role-play simulations, there are more pegs, massively online role-playing games. All of these things are part of the future of education. And the sooner we bring all this kind of stuff into the classroom and engage children uh, with it, the better. I know some of my teacher colleagues are bringing in things like Guitar Hero and, and, um, and uh, even Farmville and, and things like this that you play on Facebook to actually engage children in the idea of learning for the future. Students also want anytime, any place learning, but most importantly, I think they want it in a personalized way. And this is why a lot of students are migrating away from the institutional VLE for fun things. They'll use the institutional VLE, I think, the learning management system, when they have to, when their tutors suggest to them that they need to, but they use Facebook when they want to, and that's the difference for me. It's about personalizing your learning space. And that's what's important, I think, to today's students, whatever their age. Now, this has gone a little bit astray here, this slide here, but uh, these are supposed to be a little bit larger. I think it's been lost in translation here between uh, British English and American English. But um, I, no, I think it's just a, a, a system fault. But um, these are the things I think that learners will need. These are the new digital literacies, as I call them. Um, sorry, I, I'm going to go back there because I, I passed that slide too quickly. They'll need all of these uh, skills to not just survive in the digital age, but also to be able to consolidate their learning and to be able to connect with each other in meaningful ways and protect their identities and so on. Uh, as I said before, all of these slides are available um, on slideshare.net and uh, we'll give you the, uh, the link at the end. But um, I want to show you this picture now. You probably all ex you know, experienced this before if you've been to university in particular or, or a large conference. The, the idea behind this is that um, everyone is sat in the same room having the same experience, or are they? Um, because although this is not what I would call personalized learning, maybe this is. Well, what do you think about that picture there? If you think about that picture, you can see that just about every one of those uh, students there has their own unique personalized window on the world. They may or they may not be creating connections to the learning that's going on. They may just be connecting to each other to ask each other questions about what they're going to do tonight uh, when they leave the university. Or they may be, in hope, hopefully in most cases, engaging with the learning and how it's, how it's going to affect them. They may be asking questions of each other and they may be creating content which is related to that learning. That's what I, I, I think um, will be the future as well. This kind of personalized approach using personalized uh, tools. Um, so personalization for me is really about looking at individual differences and ensuring that they're all acknowledged. I love this picture because for me, I, I'm, I'm the guy in the middle there, you know, I'm the one who kind of seems to face the other way a lot of the time. Um, I don't know why, I'm just weird like that, <laughs> but there we are. I've still got stripes on me just like you. Um, for me, this is what I would consider to be my personalized environment and there are lots of ways of describing this, but essentially a PLE for me is not just the personal web tools. They are important because they connect you and they allow you to create your content. But it goes beyond that. You've got a personal learning network as well. 
And you've even got other things outside of that which all constitute together what you would consider to be your personal learning environment, including experiences and reading books and uh, what I call realia, which are the, uh, are the kind of the experiences of visiting somewhere and, and meeting somebody, talking to them live. So all of this, for me, is what I would consider to be personal learning. And we just don't do enough of this. We don't allow enough of this to happen in formal learning environments, to my mind. Uh, intuitive handheld devices are another important aspect for the future of learning, where you can connect to your learning networks, where, where you have natural gesture interfaces, things that are intelligent uh, tools which you do not have to think too much about using. Uh, for me, the problem with most tools today is that students have to worry too much about navigating around them and passwords and, and all this, uh, all the kind of the, the minutiae of, of trying to roll around the screen, move, move themselves around the screen and find things they need. Whereas um, a transparent technology allows you to see through the technology and look at the learning instead and spend your time and invest your cognitive energy into learning rather than thinking about how to use the tool. That to me is also an aspect of the future, the important future of, of education. This is a very interesting picture here. I've, I've enlarged it slightly to show you that, that this is a crowd during one of Obama's speeches back, um, I think, just before he was elected. And you'll notice that most people there are holding up their hands. And in their hands, they have either a handheld device like a camera or a mobile phone or something. There's even a guy over on the side there holding up a laptop, and he's live streaming. And the idea behind this is, is that they are connecting, not just with each other in the moment, at a historic moment, but they're also connecting with all their friends and, and people they care about elsewhere in the world who cannot be there personally. And that for me is just absolutely amazing because it gives everybody the same personal experience. And somebody who is there, who cares about them, is sharing a picture or a video with them. And that's the kind of stuff we need uh, for our students. We need them to be able to communicate online en masse. Uh, where everybody has this ability to connect with everybody else inside and outside the room, very much like what we're doing now, I suppose, across the world with this Illuminate session with 126 participants. Uh, it's about collaboration as well. It's about a number of things, such as sharing common interests and, 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 and having a common purpose, but it's also about what um, is known as the wisdom of the crowds. It's, a, it's about um, a, an aggregation of, of, of intelligence, an aggregation of knowledge, uh, where, where the group themselves are actually greater than the sum of the parts. I think that's important for us to remember with any type of learning that takes place these days using social media. Um, the social media landscape, I won't bore you with, but I w what I will say is this. It's, it's gone from sticky to participated very quickly. It's gone from websites that you cannot change to websites that, that you are actually creating yourself. It's so easy to create a website these days. It's so easy to, um, to, to actually um, involve yourself with, with things like Wikipedia and, and with blogs and with, with uh, podcasting and so on. And, and post up videos to YouTube and share your Flickr images and so on. It's amazing how many opportunities we and our learners have got now to participate together in creating content. So social media also gives everybody a voice, even if they're shy. They can, they can sit there anonymously and still participate um, because their shyness is overcome by the fact that they are anonymous and nobody can shoot them down if they make a mistake. I think we've also got to create environments where learners are able to make mistakes and learn from them without any criticism as well, what I would call the psychologically safe environments, um, where you can take risks and learn from them. Look at these figures here. I think this says it all. 
Facebook currently has just over 600 million people using it. On, on Wikipedia, there are over 14 million articles, and that's just in English. Forget the other languages for now, just English alone, 14 million articles. Uh, Twitter has nearly 200 million uh, subscribers now. Uh, and YouTube, 2 billion views per day and 24 hours of video is loaded up every minute. This is greater than the sum of all of ABC, NBC, and CBS combined in the last 50 years. That's incredible. So we've got this huge conglomeration of content out that is being generated by our users every day. And, and that has, cannot be ignored. We've got to pay attention to that, otherwise we're, we're fools. The architecture of participation, uh, as Eugene Barsky called it, is really all about those things, but ultimately it's about that user-generated content. That's what it's really all about. Um, yes, yeah, someone's just said here, I think it's Steve, uh, the web has become a conversation, and that's true. And blogging is part of that conversation. Daniel Chandler once said a very profound thing. He said, in the act of writing, we are written. Now, I don't know what you think that means, but for me, that actually means that as I write my blog, it crystallizes my abstract thoughts. So, in effect, the abstract nebulous thinking that I've got can actually crystallize itself and become more concrete as I write it and then refine it. And the process doesn't stop there because as I then uh, receive comments back, informal peer review, if you like, back from my readers, I can then refine my comments and my ideas even further. And that gives me a huge advantage in terms of the way I'm thinking at the moment. It's a very powerful tool, and so is mobile blogging, or mo-blogging, where you can capture things on the move. Lots of people are doing this now, and it's becoming a very, very important tool for reporting, in particular for citizen journal journalism, like you see in Libya and Iran and, and, and Christchurch in New Zealand at the moment. It's live experiences being sent to the world. All of this is the future of education for me. Retweeting for me is not repetition. It's an amplification of ideas. It's, it's, it's greater than just repetition. And uh, if you look at microblogging in all its forms, whether it's Twitter or Tumblr or, or Plurk or whatever, uh, Martin Ebner and his colleagues are suggesting that we've got to see this as a new type of communication. It goes beyond what we've previously known. It's, it's breaking the mold. It's, it's almost a new paradigm that we're seeing here. It's certainly a new phenomenon. Media sharing is important. Everybody can contribute to the, the, the new narrative, the richness, the conversation that Steve Huggerton uh, just referred to. And collaborative tools. How do we get people to collaborate? Well, we, we get them to collaborate through tools and through shared language, but we also get them to collaborate because there's a common need. And Vygotsky had a lot to say about this, um, but ultimately, my idea behind what I think Vygotsky was talking about with human activities is that with computers, they can become mind tools. They can become, if you will, extensions of our mind where we invest in the computer the memories that we have without having to overburden our own cognitive capacities. We can time shift and we can um, space shift our ideas out onto the computer and then use our minds for thinking about the problems that are involved with them. So for me, computing, it's a very powerful tool, and social media is really the kind of the social aspect of that, the conversational aspect. I mentioned George Siemens earlier on. He says that learning occurs both inside and outside of people. We store our knowledge in computers and in other people. That's exactly what I mean when I say mind tools. Uh, that's an idea that originated with, uh, I think, David Jonathan, 
who's an old friend of mine who who is somewhere now in uh, uh, the west side of America, I believe. Someone may know him. Um, Karen Stevenson said something very important as well. We store our knowledge with our friends. And that is vital when, when you think about the connectivist theory, how we, we, we tend to collect people around us. Um, I, I love connecting with people on Twitter, so um, I'm Tim Buckteeth on Twitter if you want to connect with me. And I'm on Facebook, I'm on various other tools as well, and, and I love to connect with people because you never know what you're going to learn from someone else. You should always be open to the experience of, of new learning and uh, other people's new ideas. So it, we can't experience everything ourselves, but we can experience it vicariously through other people. They become the surrogate for our knowledge. Um, I think someone's raised their hand there. Shall I, shall I, shall I stop and answer no, the question? No, she might have been clapping, and she accidentally hit the hand raise. All right. Right, okay. Well, I'll carry on then in that case. And, and um, I'll, I'll tell you, um, the question I raised earlier on was, was whether um, students have expectancies or needs. Uh, they have both, actually, but these are their needs. The expectancies that they have don't necessarily measure up to their needs, I, I've noticed in my experience uh, of 30 years of teaching. But what they do have is needs, and these are what I think their needs are. They obviously need to learn how to learn, as I said right at the beginning, but they also need critical thinking skills. They need to be able to collaborate with each other effectively without um, wondering about who has ownership of the ideas or, or worrying about who's going to edit their Wikipedia page for them. Um, it's not a taxonomy, Colin. Uh, no, um, it, I, for me, it's just a series of of, of, um, of of concepts which I think they all need. And the arrows are really kind of pointing down to. Um, it's not a progression exactly, but it, it's a kind of a deepening of understanding. And, and when you get to the reflective stage, and then the reflexive stage, which is where where you're thinking about thinking and reflecting upon your own experiences, um, and then you get finally to the evaluation stage. This is not Bloom's taxonomy or any other taxonomy. It's just a way of thinking through all of the the, the skills and the things that, that students need to learn, I think, to be able to uh, work in a, in a world where, which we can't clearly describe yet. So let me just finally go through a few ideas about how the web has progressed for me. These are false distinctions, I think. Web 1 and Web 2, that was Tim O'Reilly's original concept. For me, Web 1... If, if such a thing existed, was that anything can link to anything. Hyperlinking and hypermedia were important because they, they surpassed the idea of the book, which was very static. Nothing wrong with books. I've got a whole bookshelf in front of me here from the floor to the ceiling. You'd be surprised how many books I've got in my office here. But books are one thing. Hypermedia is, is another thing entirely. And that's what Web 1 was really all about. But it was quite sticky. We had to really move to Web 2 to get full user participation. And the thing is, we're now very much moving into Web3, which is where we're taking existing data and we're reconnecting it for other smarter uses. And, and uh, that, to me, is the point we're at the cusp of, of where we're on at the moment, I think, with the tools. And if you look at this um, system here, um, this is slightly out of uh, kilter, I'm afraid, because of the way the slides have been translated across. But if you can imagine that on the left-hand side, you've got a degree of information connectivity going upwards. And on the right-hand side, you've got, down the bottom, you've got a degree of social connectivity. Web 1 was right down the bottom of both of those. Web 2 was richer in terms of social connectivity, but it really, for me, wasn't any better in terms of information connectivity. The information's there, but it's only being connected socially at the moment. Web 3 really is about the semantic web. It's about greater information connectivity, but it will sacrifice itself in terms of social connections. 
the meta web is where we need to go. And that arrow, the blue arrow, the light blue one, should be going up diagonally from the bottom left to the top right to show a progression into what I call the, the smart extended web. You see, web one for me connects information. Web two connects people. Web three connects knowledge. And web four actually connects intelligence. And that's where the power of the web will really be revealed. This, for me, is the future of education, the future of learning. This is where we're headed, folks. And here's one final thing for you to think about. The idea of interfaces. How are we currently interfacing with computers? Well, what we're doing is we're using uh, technologies from the 20th century. We're using keyboards and mice and touchpads. I'm predicting that with the use of things like the Xbox Connect and MIT's um, uh, Sixth Sense wearable, we're going to be going into the realm of non-touch technologies. Uh, you probably know how these work, but to interface computers using these, I think, is the next movement. This will be the next thing that we'll see, probably within the next five years. I'm sticking my neck out there. This is on record, but I really do think that this will be another movement, another kind of um, leap, if you like, towards uh, our use of computers as learning tools. And you know this picture. This is Tom Cruise in Minority Report. You've seen that probably. And if you haven't, go and have a look at it. It's a fabulous film. Um, and the idea behind this is that he's not touching anything, but he's using gauntlets or finger caps or whatever to move things around on the screen very intuitively using natural gestures. And really, it's got all these things in it. But there's more to come. We're also looking at speech-to-text in a better sense than we already know it. And we're probably going to be looking at facial feature recognition as well. So the computer will know when you're unhappy or when you're confused. Um, all of these things we're predicting are going to happen uh, probably in the next five to ten years. And finally, we're already seeing evidence of this smart extended web through things like intelligent filtering and recommender systems. This picture of the snail here was um, reminiscent of, of um, a guy called um, Steve, uh, what's, his, what's his surname, uh, the natural born cyborgs man. Some of you probably remember his name. Uh, Andy Clark, sorry, Andy Clark, not Steve, uh, that's my name. Andy Clark, who said that um, he looked out of his window one morning on a very frosty morning and he saw lots of silvery trails in his garden and he realized that the slugs and the snails had been busy overnight, probably eating his cabbages. And uh, he realized a very profound thing here and that was that the first snail or the slug that goes to try and find food actually expends a lot of energy as it deposits slime trail full of enzymes along the floor. And then it will come back over that slime trail to find its home again when it's, once it's fed. The second snail and the third snail who follow that same slime trail will actually expend less energy until by the time the 10th or the 20th snail have gone along that pathway, knowing that there's food at the end of it, they will be expending no energy whatsoever. And this for him was what uh, is happening with the intelligent systems out there. They're recommending you things. You're not having to spend so much effort and energy finding the knowledge and the information that you require anymore. That is the start, for me, of the smart extended web. And I'm going to finish at that point and say thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed that and, and um, learned something from it. Hey, Walt says cyber slime. I like that. That's a good one. That's a, that's a neologism, Walt. You've created a new word there for us all. And there's my contact details. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. So we're going to stay on. Don't, we're not done. Um, Steve, I did put the link that you had given 
to the slideshow, and I'm seeing again somebody saying that link didn't work for them, and I'm wondering if it works in some countries and doesn't work in others. If somebody's had success downloading Steve's slide deck, uh, would you mind putting that link up? It's a slideshow.net link, and uh, letting us know uh, what link it's, worked um, for you. It's, Steve, it's actually slideshare.net, not slideshow. So there, there's the link there. Bob's just put it up. Okay, terrific. Thank you, Bob and Dimitri. Okay, so I captured some questions, Steve, and I have some of my own, so we'll get started. If you'd like to ask a question using the microphone, those of you in the audience, please feel free to look for the hand with the green up arrow. It's an icon at the bottom of the participant window. If you click on that, you can raise your hand, and we'll give you the microphone, and you can ask a question through the microphone. Otherwise, you're welcome to put a question in the chat, and I've tried to capture a few. So uh, Chris asked, Historically, education has relied on select few established sources of information. What happens to education when everyone is a source? Well, that's a really interesting question. What happens to education when everyone is a source? Well, the first thing is that education becomes more democratized. The important thing here is that we have more access for anybody who wants to learn. At the moment, or at present, in many countries, children are excluded from education. In the Gambia where I was uh, late last year, early last year, um, they only go to primary school. They leave school when they're 11 years old and then they're expected to work because the government will not fund education for them. But with mobile technologies, like many of them now have, they will be able to learn outside of school. And this is what I'm talking about when I say informal aspects of learning. So, so for me, the most important message here is that education will be much more democratized, but it will also become more accessible as well. Okay, Steve. Uh, Jason says, I find that teachers become so worried about what each student might be doing that their teaching suffers. How do we create comfort for those that don't believe that learning is occurring? The problem you've got there is, is that we have a performativity going on. We have governments of the world who are state-funded, who have state-funded education. They're wanting to, to know through metrics, through statistics, how many students are, are passing because they want to know how the schools perform. They're not, they're not necessarily interested in how the children are learning. They're interested in how the school is performing. And that really ties up the teacher. That hog ties them. And, and teachers spend a lot of their time these days with, with uh, records and with, with measurements and with uh, you know, uh, standardized testing and so on, which is actually an abomination, I think, because standardized testing, the only thing it does is it teaches children how to pass standardized tests. Uh, there, there's no such um, way that, that, um, that this will prepare children for a world of work. And, and the other thing about it is, is that it, it's fooling them into thinking that if they pass their test, they will become successful. That's not the case. Um, success is, is created mainly by, by your own effort. So what we should be doing instead is doing away with standardized tests. We should be doing away with all the metrics. And we should be enabling, uh, releasing teachers, liberating them to be able to, um, to, to, to teach and to help students learn to create learning environments that are less about metrics and more about um, skills and, and, and learning that is relevant to today's society. Um, I, I, f I find it um, abhorrent the way um, teachers are, are tied up in assessment all the time. Uh, I, I really don't know what the answer is, but what I will suggest to people is that we adopt positive deviance. 
In other words, um, you, you, you take the part of, of somebody who uh, you know, complies, I suppose, with the rules, but at the same time subverts them and, and creates environment, environments which are better than the schools that the superintendents and the governments and, and the, uh, the governors want. So I'm not going to push this uh, connection too far, but it does seem to me as though this is not a new story. I mean, if you, if you look at progressive education, there are a lot of schools that have done very good jobs of this kind of connecting, even without the technology. And are we seeing the same phenomenon that's taking place in the Middle East, where the, the um, institution is, has less and less power to push down its uh, formal way of seeing things, and the audience has more and more voice? So are we seeing in education the same phenomenon of the audience starting to say, this is not what we want? Do you know, I can give you an analogy, Steve, about um, general practitioners, doctors, who, who um, are quite concerned now because patients are coming into their offices actually more informed about their condition than the doctors are. Um, <laughs> now, if we extrapolate that to teaching, we've got the same thing happening. We've got parents coming in and then we've got students coming in who know what they want. They know what the tools are and they, they know what knowledge and, and what skills they, they require. And they, the teacher is supposed to be the subject expert, and of course they are, otherwise they wouldn't be there, but the teacher's position is being challenged in some way, so teachers really have to kind of think on their feet. Teachers have to kind of try to be one step ahead now, um, all the time. As you say, it's always been thus in terms of um, challenging the authorities and so on, but, but I think we're seeing a paradigm shift now. We're seeing this democratization of knowledge where everybody is, is learning more about what well, interests them and therefore is more knowledgeable and therefore is less open to being fooled by, by those who want to fool them, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not explaining that very well, but, but what I'm trying to say is, is that knowledge uh, is now, there's a lot more of it out there. And uh, Chris Batchik says, yeah, 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 knowledge democracy. So, Dan, you've been patient uh, with your hand up. I'm giving you the microphone to turn your mic on. You click in the lower left. There you go. Thank you, Steve. This is a, uh, a beautiful presentation you've just made. Um, and my question is about how can or how will economies and politics be affected by Web 4.0 or the democratization of knowledge. What do you think? Well, that's a really interesting question. I, I'm, I'm currently being um, involved in various um, UK government initiatives. Um, I, I was um, over at um, the, the mayor's um, office last month talking about these very issues, and I've been invited to the Houses of Parliament in, in uh, London as well to, to speak to some um, MPs there about social media and, and how they can best use it uh, to to, um, to, to, to kind of promote their ideas. You, you see, the thing is, um, we cannot really separate economics and politics. They're, they're tied up with each other. If we see social media affecting the economy, then politicians will jump on and, and, um, and, and use it more. Uh, I, I think what, we'll, what, what we will actually see happening is that we'll see less traditional jobs in the future and more knowledge working jobs, jobs where people have to know how to use social media. They'll have to know how to effectively 
employ computing technologies and communications technologies and mobile technologies to do their job. So I think we're going to see a, a shift in the world of work which will affect the economy, hopefully positively, because um, everything's already connected. We know that because when uh, America gets a cold, Britain gets it the next day with the economic um, environment. We know that stocks and shares go up and down all the time, but there seem to be trends around the world when that happens. So we're already connected in that sense, but I think we're going to see a deeper connection. We're going to see a deeper social connection, um, which involves people connecting more to each other and therefore knowing more about each other. So culturally, we're going to, um, I think, coalesce a bit more. And, and also politically, I'm not sure what's going to happen. We don't know what will happen there, but we know that it's all uh, bound up in the same social milieu. So um, the interview I did last night with uh, John C.D. Brown on his book, uh, New Culture of Learning, would probably be a really interesting one for you to look at, Dan, um, because he talks about the degree to which companies that can facilitate the kind of individual passion and personalization of their workers are the ones who will survive and that becomes a sort of a compelling parallel message with education. Steve, uh, Peggy George says, I'm not finding the digital native digital immigrant terms very helpful anymore. What's a better way to describe these different stages of learning? Well, Peggy, that's a really good question. Um, in fact, um, Prensky, Mark Prensky talks about three things. He talks about the analogs as well, those who have no need and no uh, will to, to talk about um, any digital technologies at all or get involved in them. He, and uh, he says that the older people in particular are in this mold where they, if they're going to use a mobile phone at all, they use it for calling their friends. And that's it. They, they don't even consider the idea of texting, let alone internet connections or GPS. Um, so he has three distinctions. And I don't find it very helpful either because um, firstly, it's simplistic. It ignores the fact that there are silver surfers out there. And it ignores the fact that some kids are technophobic. Uh, and the second thing it does is it trivializes the, the real issues behind digital um, uh, use and, and, and digital literacies. Now, a better term, you asked. Well, I can point you in the direction of David White, who is based at, in Oxford University, another good friend of mine. And David has come up with a term, uh, or, or um, a, a term called, um, I'm trying to think of the name of it. it it's actually uh, digital visitors and residents. And the visitors are those who go to a tool when they need to use it, whereas the residents are, who are, are those who have become adept at using it. And I think that actually derives from his work in Second Life and other 3D uh, multi-user virtual environments. So, so David White, uh, digital residents and digital visitors. I think that's a much better distinction. How does that sound to you? We'll let Peggy reply there in the chat, or she can raise her hand to grab the mic. Terry says, how will this affect women in countries where they traditionally aren't given educational opportunities? Wow, that's a really big question. Um, there are women, as we know, who are oppressed in certain uh, nations, certain cultures, um, people who aren't even allowed to, to um, speak, um, speak their voice. I mean, we, we know that in some oppressive regime, that, that's, the, that's the problem. I think what will happen, and this is speculation here, but I think what will happen is women will gain the advantage by subverting their culture, by, by um, buying into uh, new technologies such as mobile phones, 
surreptitiously so that they can create connections and so that they can Facebook each other or whatever um, without either their husbands or the authorities or whoever knowing about it. I think we're going to see a lot of this happening in uh, certain parts of the world where women are oppressed. Steve, I want to go back to a slide uh, that you showed earlier. I think I've got the right one. This is the extended web slide. Um, I was wondering where creation uh, would fall on this slide. Because one of the concerns I have about the quick shift to Web 3.0 is that it um, sort of misses the point of the involvement of the user. Yeah, another good question. Um, I, I think that user-generated content has lots of issues to it, and it depends on what type of user-generated content you're talking about. I think if we're just talking about simple content, such as a blog post or, I don't know, a podcast, I think you're looking at the, the juxtaposition there between Web 1 and Web 2, maybe moving across to Web 2, um, where we're talking about a degree of social connectivity. It's where you start to connect it to intelligent systems, where you start to um, enable people to search through it in intelligent ways, and, and where it starts to become meta-tagged, that you start to move it up above that line. But that, again, is, is me busking. It's me speculating. OK, uh, Paul, Paula says, how can we do project-based learning, authentic learning, and be worried about passing tests, uh, that, passing tests that test lots of small bits of information with no connections? Can you hear me now? I've lost the connection, I think. Yeah, you are back. So I'm back, question? OK. Um, I, I heard part of it. Can you repeat it again? So this is from Paula. She says, how can we do project-based learning or authentic learning when we're worried about passing tests that test a lot of small bits of information with no connections? I, I think I'm back again. I keep getting this, um, this uh, window coming up. <clears throat> this is a question about assessment. This is a question about um, learning as well. Firstly, I, I think that assessment of learning is wrong um, to a certain extent because, um, again, it's, it's metric. Assessment for learning is better, where the, the, um, the student is tested so that the, 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 the teacher can find where the deficits are in their knowledge or, or where they're doing well. Uh, this is what I would call di di diagnostic assessment. So really, we need to build more diagnostic assessment into learning. <clears throat> and that can be done through project work. But um, if the examiners won't accept that because either it's collaborative or in some way it's in a format they don't accept, then we've got to overturn the minds and we've got to change the minds of the assessors uh, or the assessing bodies. Now, we need formative assessment. You're correct, Benjamin. But we also need what I call ipsative assessment. I'll actually type that in because ipsative assessment, for me, is a way forward for, for project learning and for also for individualized learning because what it does is it allows you to assess the student's attainment or achievement against their own previous attainment. Now that, for me, is a lot fairer. It's not criterion or norm-referenced. It's about children and young people being assessed against their own previous uh, learning. And kids are already doing this with games. You know, hey, I scored, um, you know, uh, 500 on, on that game last week, I'm going to go for 1,000 this week. So they're already measuring themselves against their own previous attainments. For me, that's a natural thing for kids and young people to do, particularly in the gaming culture. Now, 
some of the stuff I do with my students who are between the ages of 18 and 25 usually is, is I, I give them projects where they collaborate in wikis or, or they collaborate in group blogs or they collaborate in creating videos and then we assess the overall efforts of the group. You can track back in things like wikis to see who's done what to avoid anything like social loafing where one person doesn't do enough. But generally speaking, you've got to get the students to agree to share the, the marks if you're going to go that route. Another method of project work which I find really useful is structured problems or ill-structured problems where you present the students with a problem and they all go away and solve it on their own but then they come back and discuss their individual solutions in a discussion group or, or an online space and then you just stand back and let it erupt because they've all got different ideas about how they're going to solve the problem particularly if it's ill-structured with few parameters and they'll all learn from each other because they'll see all the possible solutions that there might be. The real clincher is when you present them with an expert solution and then they can stand back and, um, and, and see that there are, there are many, many possibilities. That for me is the, is the way forward in terms of types of assessment. Steve, Chris asks, uh, the advance of technology seems to have coincided with the demise of critical thinking skills. Is there value in the analog constructs of critical thinking or is it better taught without technology in the classroom? Well, I mean, I, I, would, I, I think that I would disagree that there's, there's a decline in critical thinking. I, I think um, it depends on where you are and what you're doing, what the context is. I think that um, there are certain tools that actually promote better critical thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of considering uh, my use of my, my students' use of, of wikis where I, I give them a, a very small presentation to get them thinking, uh, kind of like a trigger tool if you like, and um, you know, kind of a, an idea for them to, to get their heads around, maybe a controversial issue or topic. And then I ask them to go away and, and, and create their own content using a wiki. From there I get them to, to, to put their ideas together on, on, on similar pages, you know, where, where they're actually vying with each other for, for, um, for space to actually say what they need to say. That for me is one aspect of, of, of critical thinking because they're having to critically appraise other people's work as well as their own to see what the, you know, what the, um, the, the fit is between what they're saying and what their colleagues or their peers are saying. But then they have to really go away and also appreciate that the web is not full of accuracy. There is accuracy out there, but they have to search for it. They have to verify it. So using something like Wikipedia, for example, um, they really have to be critical and critically aware that what they're reading may or may not be totally true or accurate. Uh, I, I think that there are ways that technology can be used to promote critical thinking. Okay, Chris again asked, and, and uh, Chris gets to ask these questions because he put them in the chat. So if you have a question, please feel free to put it in the chat or raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow. He says, Steve, do you support UDL, which I'm thinking is Universal Design for Learning, and individualized curricula for all students? Is technology forcing individualization in the classroom? Well, technology will inevitably I think promote individualized learning or what I would call personalized learning which is not quite the same thing but I, I, you get the drift. For me you see, uh, when I showed you that picture earlier on of each student sat in a very very large lecture room but each of them with a, a laptop on their, their laps, 
Increasingly, students are using handheld devices in the classroom as well, or iPads if they can afford them, or, or the smaller tablets. Um, and these are personal tools, so, so there's no getting away from the fact that learning is becoming individualized. I think there is the case where the curricula need to change, but I don't think they will change significantly and quickly enough for personalized learning to be delivered. But I think personalized learning will be received. That's the difference. Um, students will work their own ways out of personalizing learning because they have the tools now to do that. <clears throat> that previously didn't happen, but now we're seeing evidence of it already. So that's what I think will happen. Okay, we've only got a few more minutes uh, with Steve Wheeler. If you asked a question and I missed it, please post it again in the chat. Uh, you can also raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow. That's an icon at the bottom of the participant window to let us know you want to ask a question. Um, Steve, there have probably been some books that have been significant for you, some thinkers. Uh, you mentioned um, Ilyich, and uh, I didn't know Vygotsky. Um, are there other books you feel like are, are books that we can hearken to that will that we should be sort of listening to those messages? I've got so many books I could I could talk to you about. One of the first books that influenced me was Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. And later on, he brought out another book called uh, The Third Wave, which is about the technological revolution. Now, those were my early thoughts um, back in the 70s and 80s about, about um, the learning technologies before it was known as such. Lately, um, I suppose in the 90s, the book that, one of the books that influenced me the most, I'll give you two in fact, was Howard Rheingold's Smart Mobs. Howard and I are, are old friends now. We've known each other for a few years. And, and um, he's, he wrote an introduction to my last book, Connected Minds. Um, but um, smart mobs for me was the essence of, of, of what mobile technology was going to be all about. And also it was about the civil movements. And the other book that really influenced me was uh, one of Marshall McLuhan's acolytes, Derek de Kirchhoff, who wrote a book called The Skin of Culture. That also is a seminal book because it just defines the relationship between um, humans and technology. And it, and it really talks about how we align ourselves to new technologies very naturally. And I think that for me was, was a real eye-opener as well. And I read that probably in two days <laughs> in the summer, sat in my garden. And um, uh, so th those were some of the books that really influenced me then. I, I think coming up to modern day, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, of people like Lawrence Lessig's work, you know, Free Culture, and, 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 and people like um, Seth Godin with Tribes. Uh, you know, these, these books for me, although they're very simplistic in their approach because they're popular press um, books really, they have a, a, a richness and a deepness to them which talks to me about the future of, of what we're going to be experiencing with, with, with new technologies. That's a lot of fun. I've made some notes. Steve, I didn't know uh, about Connected Minds. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Uh, well, sure, yeah, Connected Minds Emerging Cultures, uh, you can search for it on, uh, on the web, you'll find it. Connected Minds Emerging Cultures is a compendium of um, articles written by myself and several of my colleagues from around the world. You'll find that they, um, they come from five continents. And uh, as I say, Howard Rangel wrote the introduction to it. There are various, I'll, I'll, I think I have a copy on the shelf here. I'll just get it off the shelf and, and um, give you a list of the titles if you like. Uh, in, in the chapters in the book. So firstly, there's one by me called Learning in Collaborative Spaces, Engaging in a Culture of Sharing. 
Then there's one um, by uh, John Traxler called Mobile Subcultures. There's one on identity in cyberspace by Hugh Miller and Jill Arnold. There's another one by me called Digital Tribes and Virtual Clans, where I talk about tribal cultures online. Uh, there's, um, there's, there's several here on cyborg theory and, uh, by people like Vasi van der Venter from um, South Africa and, and Ken Gale from the UK. And, and there are various other passages in here like cybercrime in society and language evolution in texting environments and, and uh, imagined worlds, emerging cultures. There's quite a lot in here. There's, I think, 17 chapters in total. And um, the subtitle of the book is Cybercultures in Online Learning. So it's a book about cybercultures in all their various forms, really. So Steve, we're going to give the last question to Nellie, because this is one I care about as well. She says, will live sessions, like the one we're in, continue being expert geared, or will they be different format in the future? Because this seems like what happens in the face-to-face -face classroom. Nelly, that's um, as ever an astute question from you. I would expect that from you, knowing you as I do. Um, I think yes and no. I think we're going to see both types. We're, we're going to see a, a kind of a divergence going on. We're going to see user forums a lot more, I think, where <clears throat> nobody is considered to be any more expert than anybody else, a flat hierarchy, if you will, where these kind of things will, will happen over a longer period of time. Um, not just an hour, but probably days and weeks and, and months. We will meet virtually more, I think, not just because of the reasons um, of, of uh, problems of travel and, and cost and so on, but because I think it's expedient to do so. We've got the technologies. Why don't we now use them to do these kind of things? But I think that this kind of what you call an expert exposition or you know a presentation by a specialist like you know like me um, is I think is still going to happen. I think there's still value in it. There's value in both, and I think we need to keep both, um, because if we lose either, I think we're going to be the poorer for it. Okay, thanks, Nelly, for the question. Thanks, Steve. I'm going to clap for you here. I'm using the clapping hand icon at the bottom of the participant window. It was a delightful hour. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for supporting the series. And do be sure to. Um, to feel free to join us for one of our upcoming events uh, if there's something there that interests you. Steve, any last words? Uh, simply keep the faith, guys. <laughs> okay, that was terrific. So we, we were listening to Steve Wheeler. And Steve, we really appreciate your coming on. And uh, what time is it there for you? It's got to be close to 9 o'clock, right? Uh, it's exactly 20 seconds to 9 o'clock, yes. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, spending your evening with us. Thanks to the rest of you for joining us. Really delightful. I'm going to go ahead and turn the recording off in order for the recording to process. You do all have to exit the room. I'll give you a couple of minutes to make final notes or questions to each other if you'd like. Again, thanks, Steve. We'll let you go at this time. Sure appreciate your being a part of the show. And the recording will get posted on futureofeducation.com within a couple of hours. That will be both the link to the full Illuminate recording and the MP3 file.